0: I was accused of writing wild lines. That was my crime. Greater Manchester will not be taken advantage of if I'm there. All our police forces are broken. I want criminals terrified of the police. You're a community leader. Who told you you're a community leader? The second you apologise, they smell blood. We can end off sleeping in Greater Manchester in one year. We'll clamp down on begging you. There'll be no begging you in Greater Manchester. I take responsibility of people holding do in our hospital. Stop struggling, you muppet. Now, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, because I'm uncancelable.
1: Hi folks, on today's show, I'm joined by Nick Buckley, MBE, um who is a mayoral how do you say that mayoral
0: yes something like that mayoral <laughs>
1: candidate uh for uh, greater manchester um next year in 2024 and i think the uh, that'll be in may if i'm correct
0: yes second of may uh
1: nick just tell us about yourself please
0: yep sure um nothing special kid who grew up on a council estate um didn't go to university had lots of jobs been self employed for quite a bit um and then fell into a career and that was about 20 years ago i got a job at manchester council working with young people stopping them getting involved in crime and i excelled at it because i probably was one of those young people when i was a kid just on the edges of criminality making poor decisions no role models at home no father figure um and that led me down that path of crime reduction, promoted a few times, ended up running Manchester City Centre in terms of reducing crime and antisocial behaviour, which was a big job. Then was my team was made redundant in 2011. So I took redundancy and set up a charity to carry on that work, working with young people on the streets. And then we created a new project from that, working with rough sleepers in the city centre, getting them into accommodation. Um, and then my life sort of changed three years ago with Black Lives Matter. Most people know me for that. I wrote a blog criticizing the organization, was accused of being a racist and a Nazi, was sacked from the charity I founded, mounted a fight back, a successful fight back, got my job back, got the charity back, made the board of trustees resign in disgrace. And then ever since then, I've been a campaigner for free speech. And then I started to dip my toe into politics, hence why I'm now standing for Mayor of Greater Manchester next year.
1: When you say you dipped your toe into politics, um, didn't you just fall head first into politics with, um, with well, any kind of criticism, Black Lives Matter, um, or, um, or dealing with any subject like that?
0: Yes. I mean, that's all politics, um, but then I went into trying to be a politician. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's a lot of bit of a difference there.
1: Yeah, when when that happened, um, when you were effectively cancelled, this was from your own charity, and this is yes. a charity that you you formed yourself. Yeah, how did that feel?
0: Devastating. For the first week, I was a broken man. My life was over. My reputation was in tatters. Personal friends had turned against me and sacked me from my charity. Um, it felt like the world was against me. I had so many people online calling for my sacking, happy that I'd been sacked, signing petitions to have me fired. And this was all new to me. If you'd have told me before that, that something like that could have happened to me, I'd have laughed in your face. Can't happen to me. And then if you'd have said I'd have fallen apart, I'd have laughed again at you thinking, you no idea who I am. Do you know how tough I am? My life, you know what I've gone through, what I've overcome, I'm tougher than hurty words online, but I wasn't as tough as I thought to begin with, but then your inner strength comes through, your inner courage comes through, and you say to yourself, "I'm not having this, this is extremely unfair. This is un- you know this is unjust." Um, so then through my cowardice for that first week, I then found my real courage it's changed me as a person actually
1: and and this this sacking uh, this cancellation came from a um from what sounds to me like quite a, a small sample of um uh, uh of people making a complaint relatively yeah. speaking
0: yeah it was 450 people signed an online petition to have me fired uh sounded a lot at the time but when i mounted my fight back we had eighteen thousand people Sign a petition to have me reinstated, so that puts it into some sort of context. But at the time, four hundred fifty people sounded a lot of people to me.
1: Uh, in fact, interestingly, I mean, four hundred fifty people on an online petition about something that is considered to be quite as emotive as that. Yeah. I, I, I It's actually surprising. You would have thought there'd be more. Knowing perhaps what you know now um and you know our experience of online petitions and pressure groups and so on and so forth you would think that there would be many more uh signatures uh perhaps mm. you were you were considered considered to be sort of small fry there were plenty of um sort of bigger fish to be um to be cancelled at that time
0: i think it's more likely more likely my background that stops mm. more people jumping on the bandwagon very hard to criticize someone as a racist and a Nazi who spent 20 years working in diverse neighborhoods, working with young people from every background, every religion. It's hard to accuse someone of being a Nazi when they use their own redundancy money to set up a charity to help other people. So I had, you know, some luck on my side. Yeah. If i had been a bit of banker, then. Everyone hates bankers, I'd have been vilified straight away. You know, if I'd have been, you know, a businessman or self-employed millionaire, you know, the socialists all would have jumped on board. He's an evil capitalist as well. But they, they, they found it very hard to pinpoint what I'd done wrong. Nobody online, I asked these questions at the time, no one online could pinpoint what I did wrong and what I said wrong. What it really was about was I was accused of writing Wild White that was my crime because i was commenting on a black organization that was my crime the article i wrote on black lives matter well even when i read it now i think it was extremely fair i commented on what they wrote on their website not a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory website not someone else's website their own website mm-hmm. and then that's the first half of the article and the second half of the article i talk about how we're being divided as a nation. And we need to come together. Black and white should come together. Muslim Christians need to come together. Gays and straights need to come together. We need to find common ground. We need to build community and society. And that was the second half of the blog. No one could point to anything I said that they disagreed with. It was how dare you as a white man comment on a black organization.
1: It's difficult to navigate when, um you are effectively supposed to remain silent when things about you happen. It rather begs the question whether we should be commenting about any of these things for fear of being cancelled.
0: Everybody should be commenting on everything and should have no fear of being cancelled. That's how we deal with bullies. That's how we deal with cancel culture. They can't cancel everybody. So mm. the only cancel... I mean, not. I wasn't brave doing what I did. I was Ignorant. I had no idea the blog I wrote would cause any waves whatsoever. So I didn't do this trying to be brave. Mm. Um, but some people are brave and some people do stick their head above the parapet. And that's what I do now. You know, I, I purposely don't avoid any subjects now. I will talk about everything. I'm a lot more forceful now than I was three years ago in my writing and in my opinions. So, you know, my, my philosophy is now come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Because I'm uncancelable now. I've shown people how you beat cancel culture. Um, No one ever comes for me anymore now because once once I mounted my fight back, all the online bullies all disappeared overnight. Once I beat the board of trustees and they all resigned in disgrace, no one has ever come for me ever again. And that's because bullies realize now I won't be bullied. And there's a consequence to being a bully. It means you can be bullied so bullies just go away and look for someone weaker. And the lesson from my experience would be don't allow people to bully you. Don't don't be a martyr. Don't, don't be controversial for the sake of being controversial and lose your job. Well, that achieves nothing. But when you know this is true, when you want to speak your mind, do it in a professional, polite way. And then you're not a coward. I wrote a whole book on this called Lessons in Courage available on Amazon Um, and it's about what happened to me that's the first chapter which everyone knows now I'm sick of talking about it but then it's also about how I fought back and where did my inner courage and strength come from and it came from all my past experiences and everybody has those experiences there'll be different experiences but everybody has overcome many things in their lives and it's about realizing that and tapping into that strength and then, using that to fight the bodies, we all can do it
1: well, unfortunately, not everybody's so strong uh, and though we might all have opinions, we might not necessarily be as strong as uh, strong as yourself um to be able to uh, express those opinions, certainly in public. I mean, you mentioned uh, the fact that you're uh, you're not a banker, you're not a millionaire. Um, I, yes, most people aren't. And yeah. most people um, remain silent. What would be your what would be your key piece of advice to anyone who is caught into in, in yeah. one of these situations and is is cancelled or vilified online or wherever wherever it may be?
0: It's definitely fight back. It's definitely reach out for help. I have people reach out for help off me all the time, and I always give them help. Join the free speech union. They were fantastic. They saved me. Um, And it's never apologize unless you know what you said was wrong. We all make mistakes, slip of the tongue. So if if you've made a mistake, just say, well, I didn't mean it like that. I meant it like this. But don't apologize. Don't backtrack what you've said because the second you apologize, they smell blood and they come after you even harder. So apology does not get rid of the problem. I never apologize. I took down the article and I, I and I'm sorry I did that. Um, I never apologized and I wouldn't apologize. And I think for people who are silent, the question I will ask them is, how long will you remain silent? So they come for your neighbor. Are you still going to be silent? They come for your brother or your sister. Are you still going to be silent? When, when do you stand up and say something? Now, again, I don't want you to be a martyr. I've come up with a phrase, be a ninja, not a whinger. We have too many people who are moaning about the state of affairs in the country, but won't say anything and won't do anything. A lot of them won't even vote. They can't be bothered. So stop being a whinger, be a ninja, which means fight back without anyone knowing you're fighting back. You know, there's things you can do online. Share a tweet. Have an anonymous account. Ask a question at a diversity training at work. You know, there's things you can do without losing your job that then gives somebody else next year a little bit of courage for them to say something or do something. And if everybody in the country just did a tiny, tiny bit and you add all that up, that's a tsunami waiting to crash upon the woke and the authoritarians. Doing nothing and being silent isn't an option. Fight back and fight back sneaky. That's my advice. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Sneaky, I So where where where's that taking you? I mean what how, how has that um how has that formed your your political uh outlook?
0: Um it's made me more outspoken. Well I was always fairly outspoken in the first place. Um it's not changed what I believe or what I think about or my opinions or my views. It's made me express them more. And it's made me want to express them more to a bigger audience because, from my experience, and again, my experience may be wrong, but from my experience, the vast majority of people agree with me with almost anything I say. We have to be careful we're not trapped in echo chambers. I'm only hearing people who only agree with me anyway. But when I talk to family and friends and people on the street who are not political, who are not on Twitter, the biggest comment I get is, well, that's just common sense, Nick. Yeah. Everything you're saying is common sense. So common sense just isn't so common anymore in the people with the biggest voices. That's what we need to remember. The people with the biggest voices don't necessarily represent us. No one saw Brexit coming until we had the referendum. I I went to bed that night, early, not even interested in the outcome, because I thought it was a foregone conclusion. There's no, there's not going to be a Brexit, so I went to bed, woke up next morning, and was shocked. I wish I'd have stayed up and watched the results come in. So change can happen, but the people that allowed loudest voices don't always represent you. So you've got to represent yourself, which means you've got to elevate your own voice.
1: Going from being a uh, perhaps you being a, a force for change, um, let's let's talk briefly about uh, about Manchester. Um, you are the, uh, candidate for mayor of greater Manchester next year. Yep. Uh, you're an independent candidate. Why, why independent you, you, you stood for, um, is it reform reform yep. UK? Um, why now independent and why, why reform in the first place? I should say.
0: Yeah. I stood for reform last time cause it was a marriage of convenience. The week I decided I, well, this was three years ago, the week I decided I was going to stand for mayor last time. Greater Manchester police had just gone into special measures. And I was sat on my settee saying to myself, I'm sick of this. The country's falling apart. The police force I used to work with, I've trained police officers, I used to be based in police stations. The police force are that bad now. They've gone into special measures. The second time ever in the history of the country, a police force has gone into special measures. There's Greater Manchester police. And I thought, I've had enough. I'm going, to stand as, I'm going to stand for mayor. No chance of winning, but I'm going to raise all these issues. And I'll try to embarrass Andy Burnham and try to make sure people vote for someone else. And the same week, I was thinking that a new party was announced on TV. So Reform UK came out of the Brexit party and said, we're, we're now Reform UK. And this is what we're going to do. And I thought, right, They've not got a candidate for the mayor of the Greater Manchester because they're only two days old. So I tweeted Richard Tice, the leader. He phoned me up 40 minutes later and said, yep, you can stand for us. That's why I stood for reform last time. Um, The reason why I'm not standing for that, I mean, I never joined the party. I wasn't a party member of reform. I just stood with them. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was campaigning three years ago, I had two main messages that people on the streets were telling me. The first message was, we don't want a mayor of Greater Manchester. No one asked us. It was forced upon us, which was true. So I'm not voting for a mayor because we were never asked in the first place, I don't want a mayor. And the second thing people said to me was, we like what you're saying, Nick, but we're sick of political parties. I'm not voting for any political party. you have all as bad as each other, plague on all your houses. And that's when I decided if I stand again, I need to address those two points. So if I stand again, I have to be an independent candidate. And if I stand again, I must promise the people of Greater Manchester that if I'm elected I'm going to hold a referendum on if you actually want a mayor or not and if you don't want a mayor we'll scrap the position
1: it seems like a, a very <laughs> odd um very odd um stance if you like um to be um to be putting yourself forward as the mayor of Greater, Man- mayor of Greater Manchester and yet at the same time but, but to some extent on a platform of also if you don't want a mayor we can scrap mm-hmm. it um isn't that sort of rather pulling the rug from your own feet
0: it is and it would be a strange thing to do if i actually wanted to be mayor of a greater manchester if that was my dream in life then it'd be a silly dream to have but i don't necessarily want to be mayor of a greater manchester i don't necessarily want to be a politician what i want is to improve the country i love That's what I want. And if by a self-sacrifice, I can show the people of this country, you don't have to put up with the political system we have. You don't have to put up with the politicians we have at the moment. Your voice matters. Your vote matters. You count. We can have change if you want change. Because look, we're getting change in Greater Manchester. They didn't want this extra layer of bureaucracy. So we're getting rid of it. Why? Because the people asked for that. Above everything, I'm a Democrat. I want democracy, I want the people to have their say. And the people may be wrong sometimes and may make mistakes, but I'd rather those mistakes be the people's mistakes, not politi- not politicians' mistakes. So for me, it'd be a win-win. If people don't want the mayor's position, let's get rid of it. At least then I fulfill the promise to the people and that hardly ever happens these days.
1: I understand that um you know, turnout is not uh is not high when it comes to uh these elections. It's
0: about just over thirty percent.
1: Just over thirty yeah. percent. Now as an independent, um is that is that low turnout effectively useful to you? Because otherwise you would normally assume that an independent would be um quite way down the ranking when it comes to when it comes to votes. Is it helpful that perhaps if you can mobilize people that wouldn't otherwise be voting, um, you could actually, um, achieve something there.
0: Who knows that's, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Does a low turnout, is a low turnout good for me or a high turnout good for me? The answer is I don't know. And it's not worth thinking about because I have no control over that. I've got to play the game I'm in and the game I'm in is the election will be the 2nd of May. And I've got no idea if it'll have a high turnout, low turnout. It'll have the same amount of turnout if there's not a general election on the same day. So I would imagine it will be 30% unless they call a general election on exactly the same day, Mm. in which case turnout will be 70%, 75%. Mm. Which one do I prefer? I have no idea. And I've given it no thought because I have no control over it.
1: How do you look at... um national politics what what what's your what are your thoughts on the on our our current situation
0: i think it's the worst it's ever been i think 40 years in the eu has ruined british politics it's going to take a decade or two for us to get back to having a decent quality level of politicians in the uk we've not needed leaders in the uk now for 40 years and you think why well Leaders make choices. We couldn't make choices when we are in the EU. All we did was implement foreign laws and directives. So we needed middle managers. That's all our politicians are at the moment. Middle managers implementing what they're told to implement. There's no leaders. Um, the Tories are absolute shambles. Absolute shambles. Half the people, half the MPs are Tories wouldn't have been Tories 20, 30 years ago. there would have been Blairites. The Tory party, there's nothing conservative about the Tory party whatsoever, absolute disgrace. And then when you look at Labour, another absolute disgrace. Don't care about the working person, don't care about the working class they bought into identity politics. Um, they're going to be, a, they'll be worse than the Tories in power, but do you know what? That'll be a blessing. I actually want Labour to win the next election because that will force the Tories into opposition and spend five years soul searching. And maybe then some leaders may emerge, maybe then they'll get some decent policies and stop this Blairite agenda. They always seem to be pushing. Then you look at some of the other parties, the Lib Dems are mental, the Greens need, (laughs) the the Greens are as if they've escaped from a lunatic asylum. Mm -hmm. Um, I like all small parties, I like Reform, I like Reclaim, I like the Heritage Party, I like the SDP. All these parties have something to offer. I don't agree with all of them on all their policies, but even the policies I don't agree with, I can understand where they're coming from with those policies and they're sensible where they come from to create those policies. So all those small parties, I'm 100% behind. So I tell people, vote for the small parties.
1: The one thing I I find with these small parties is, because you have a number of small parties who are um, sort of outside the the usual realm of the the two-party system or three-party system, depending on how you look at it, that we have is a good deal less useful than if they were working together. Now, I understand this is a bit of a tired point of conversation because people always talk about these... um, parties working together and for whatever reason this isn't possible um or 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 likely um but in the event of for example proportional representation uh being introduced if that were to ever happen then we could be in a situation where smaller parties with support could then work together post-election to create coalitions um that will form governments
0: yeah Two points there, so small parties and our first-past-the-post system. So small parties will not join together because they're individual parties with individual leaders and to be a leader of a political party, you have to have a certain type of character and that character isn't sharing power, sharing leadership, and that just goes with being a leader. Um, to make a difference, the small parties don't have to join together. They should work together and cooperate, such as we're going to stand an MP here. So please don't, please don't stand one. And then you tell us where you're going to stand one and we won't stand there. That makes perfect sense, but join together doesn't. Um, then our first past the post system. I'm not convinced on PR. Even though our system at the moment and our politics is absolute dire at the moment. It's served us well over hundreds and hundreds of years. We We would be very brave or very foolish to start tweaking with our political system, not knowing how it's going to work out. This is a blip in time at the moment with what we've got. It will sort itself out. Parliament will sort itself out. New leaders will come to the fore. Do we need to start a new system that gives outsiders and small fringes more power than they deserve? I would say probably not those small parties can have an influence i mean the biggest influence any parties had recently is ukip mm. ukip had one mp and forced a referendum that made us leave the eu so small parties can have an influence what they need to do is scare parties and then parties then will take will steal their policies so, you no, know, the Tories stole the UK policy of a referendum because they were losing votes and were scared of not winning the next election. That's how you change the major parties because all politicians ever want is votes. They don't care. Most politicians don't care about any of the policies they're implementing, they don't care about the future of the country. Their job as a career politician is to stay a career politician. They only care about votes. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory type of way. I'm saying that in a factual, common sense type of way. You need to understand the beast if you're going to tame or control the beast. Politicians want votes. So let's make sure they do as they're told by tempting them with votes. That's why they will do the policies they think people will vote for. It's up to the small parties to be more along the lines of pressure groups, to pressure Labour, Tories, Lib Dems, to steal their policies and implement them. And for my election as mayor, let's say I come second or third. I want the Toby party or any other party saying to themselves, did you see what that nobody in Greater Manchester achieved? That one man band with no money, he got 25% of the vote. He didn't win. But what could we do if we took his policies? Because they're obviously popular. I would take that as a win. Because I don't want necessarily to be a politician. I don't want a pat on the back. I don't want to be congratulated. I just want my country to be better. And if I've got the right policies, then i will say now. Anyone's entitled to have my policies and take them. You know, it's free. It, it, they're, they're, they're like um, open source software. Just take them. I don't mind. I just want my country better.
1: I, I, I fear that that might be a danger that, I mean, when we talk about policies, that's not necessarily actions, is it? So somebody's policies, something that they say, something that they say they'll do, or uh, even if they see, um, even if they see in the polls um, that um, the the electorate like a particular policy that another party ha- another party or another person has, and they adopt that just yeah. because they say it, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that it's something that they're going to follow through with.
0: No, absolutely, and that comes down to the old Avidbic saying. Fill me once, shame on you. Fill me twice, shame on me. Why does anyone at the moment believe the Tory party is going to get a grip on immigration? They tell us every 18 months, we're going to get a grip on this. They've been in power 13 years. And we, the people keep falling for it. It's shame on the people for being idiots, for keep voting for the same party who keep telling you what you want to hear and delivering nothing. So stealing my policies is fine. Take them. And then you may win an election with those policies. But then if you don't do anything about those policies, then the people should have learned a lesson and not vote for you again, no matter what you promise. Because once you break your promise, any other promise you make after that is worthless. It should be men and women of our word. Let's
1: talk about um, EULAs or the... Huh. the what was proposed, um, alternative to EULA's for, uh, for greater Manchester. Yeah.
0: The, Um, the the, the clean air zone.
1: Clean air zone. Um, that, that is now gone for now, for now. Yeah. Yeah. For now. Yeah. Um, could you tell me what happened there?
0: Yeah. So about four, five, six, seven, eight, some nearly a decade ago. Um, the government was forced into looking at clean air zones across the country because a charity called Client Earth took the government to court and won their court case by showing that the government, Tory government, was not living up to EU directives. Um, Even though at that point, I think we'd just left the European, well, we just had the referendum there, but we're still in the EU. Um so the government said, right, we need to do something about that. So they then looked across the country, found some areas that a little bit of pollution was going above and beyond the EU directive. So they created then clean air zones and said to local mayors in those areas, you need to get your pollution down. That was a directive from government. That's All they said was, you need to get your pollution down in these areas. They didn't tell them how to do it. That's up to you. We're going to give you some money, but you need to reduce it. The first thing is, why are we following EU directives? We're not in the EU anymore now, we can ignore them. But let's say we want to get cleaner air, which nothing wrong with cleaner air. The of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, um, looked at the data, which was about, Greater Manchester is 10 local authority areas. Only seven of eight of them failed the air quality. And they only failed in one or two spots. And those spots were trunk roads going into the city centre. So that's all he had to address was some trunk roads. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He didn't, he then got two other councils who had clean air to sign up to the scheme. And he said, we're gonna roll out a clean air that covers the whole of Greater Manchester. There's parts of Greater Manchester, which is countryside, sheep, cows, fields, and it covers the whole of Greater Manchester. He then said, and we're gonna charge commercial vehicles to drive in Greater Manchester. If they if their engines don't hit a certain level which is basically anything that's not a brand new vehicle um and no one had heard about it he did a consultation during covid that on just under four under five thousand people were engaged in the consultation and most of them were from organizations like cycling for britain and 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 it it was basically a setup right The signs went up after he'd won his second election. The cross-grade to Manchester saying, this is coming. And everybody went, what's a clean air zone? People Googled it and went, you're going to charge vehicles for driving. Our prices in shops are going to go up. Um, And then he lost his bottle and he suspended it, uh, sent it back to government. And a couple of weeks ago, he announced he's not going to implement it while he's mayor. Now, maybe clever words that all the infrastructure is there waiting to go. You spent you spent two, three hundred million on this. All the cameras are there. Contracts have been signed now for two years. It's costing so many hundred thousand a year for maintenance of cameras that have never been used. And he said, we're not going to implement it while well, I'm mayor. All the rumours at the moment, is he won't be mayor next year. He's going to jump ship, go to parliament. He wants to be an MP and he wants to be prime minister when Labour take over. So the mayor who comes after him, if they're a Labour mayor, comes Click the switch and you can have a clean air zone the day after tomorrow. So the fight's not over. All the infrastructure's there. And that's what, if I'm elected, that's what I'll be doing. I'll be removing all the infrastructure because whoever comes after me can flick a switch and we'll have 15 minute cities. We'll have driving a car being charged per mile. You know, we'll, we'll have a clean air zone, we'll have you less. And I'm not willing to leave all that infrastructure in place, that's why it needs to go.
1: Although if he's sitting in, uh, Westminster, we'd be getting close to that on a national basis anyway.
0: Exactly. That's (laughs) why, that's why if he jumps and I'm elected, that's why those cameras need to go Mm. ASAP before a Labour government. And we've already had, um, what's her name? Um, she's deputy leader of the Labour party, deputy prime minister. I forgot her name now. She's from Tameside, an MP for Tameside in Greater Manchester. And she's already been on tv you know the, the the clips are out there um she was on the bbc saying clean air zones and new leses will be coming to every town and city right because it's the future so yeah. they, they've already told us what what they would like we just, sometimes we just don't want to listen to them
1: I, I it seems like a lot of things go from don't be silly that's a conspiracy theory to oh it is happening and there's not an awful lot in between mm. <laughs> yeah so that it, it appears that with with a lot of these things, there is no um, there's no canary in the in the coal mine because they're they're silenced and called a conspiracy theorist, uh, and then the next thing you know, we're we're in the midst of it, and then we're yeah. sort of back backpedaling to to get out of these situations.
0: I think many politicians have the theory that the public are stupid, and then sometimes I realise they're probably correct because look at what they're getting away with. Mm. Look at what they're telling us one day, then doing the next. And I think they've worked out that there's a large part of the population who is stupid or lazy or apathetic or don't care, or even maybe so comfortable that they're not interested. Even the poorest people in this country today are richer than the richest person in this country, you know, 100 years ago Mm. so and even though we think we've got problems we've only got first world problems now so maybe a lot of people are so apathetic because we've never had it this good before Mm. but things can get bad things can get worse and things can get worse extremely quickly and that's what we're trying to avoid
1: uh if we look back at lockdown um i i have to wonder which is the most dangerous is it is it government or is it the people that follow government what are, what are your thoughts on that
0: it's both covid showed us all that the majority of people will prefer safety over freedom mm-hmm. and that's something we've always known history shows us this um, that's why we have dictators because they always portray themselves as strong men Um, same with kings and queens they always portray themselves as strong because that's what we're looking for we're tribal creatures at the end of the day and tribal creatures will follow the tribal leader it was the only way we survived and tribes and individuals and people who couldn't follow a tribal leader didn't survive and didn't reproduce and impasse pass on their genes so we're genetically programmed to follow a leader And if you take that to the nth level, that's what religion's about. That's what God's about, following an even bigger leader than your tribal leader. So we have programs for that. Um, And we've only been a modern world for a couple of hundred years. So it may take, you know, 100,000 years for a lot of this to be bred out of us. But at the moment, we're a tribal creature. And to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with that. Because in, in times of need, in times of danger, we need leaders. We need strong people. You know, we, we need people who are willing to commit violence because the people against us are committing violence. We don't win wars by singing Kumbaya and voting on which city should be bombed. You know, we win wars and we stay alive by either electing a leader or having a system in a society that creates leaders, such as, you know, the toughest man, the biggest man, the cleverest man or woman. Um, So the people will follow the leader but what covid showed me was how cowardly our leaders are at the moment how cowardly our politicians are because not our prime minister all the government the opposition nobody wanted to make decisions they they got all, all the decisions that were made were made by scientists and groups of people and that's that's not what a leader does a leader looks at the evidence looks what's around him and makes the best decision they can at that time, then sticks with that decision until things change and then takes responsibility for that decision. What we had was a lot of cowards who were worried about articles about how many people were dying and and so let's do anything, let's do anything that looks like we're doing something. And it was everything they did was wrong because they were cowards. And why were they cowards? Because we spent 40 years employing and electing middle managers to run our country because we were an offshoot of the EU. We didn't need leaders, we needed middle managers, and we paid the price for that.
1: I think it's funny you should say that because I was just thinking then when you said that, um, yeah, people being cowards not able to make their own decisions and relying on um, advice uh, from from others, especially in a situation where nobody really knows what's going on. Um, nobody giving any advice has any probably any more of a clue than anybody else as to, to what's happening. Um, but that middle management uh, thing makes me think of organizations, public sector organizations where for the for the cost of millions and well, many millions across the across the country, management consultants, um new graduates um, uh, usually uh, are bust in to make decisions and put together proposals. Also, that those managers, those um, executive officers and such like, don't have to take responsibility for mm. any anything that they do, because they can always turn around and say, "Well, actually, this was based on the, the the advice that we had from the firm that we had in for for such a thing," and they can absolve themselves completely.
0: That, that's why they do it. So, if something goes wrong and there's complaints, they can go. Well, we did our best. We got this fantastic outside consultant in to look at all that and they're an expert Mm. and that's what they recommended and that's what we did. And it's just a get out clause for senior management, especially in the town halls. And we should be asking, well, if you need an external consultant, why do we need you? What are you doing if all you're doing is employing other people to to have the information, the knowledge, and make the decisions. We don't need you then, do we? But well, we don't ask those questions. Mm. And, and when you wrap all that up, that's exactly what 10 Downing Street was doing. They couldn't make a decision. They were too scared to make the wrong decision. I mean, I agree, that I agree? I went along with the, the first lockdown for the first couple of weeks, because you looked at TV, it looked scary in China and Italy, and it was new, we'd not had a pandemic, or we thought we'd not had a pandemic before in my lifetime. And after a couple of weeks of lockdown, it was plainly obvious to me that this was the flu, that this wasn't serious. This wasn't serious like we thought it was serious. Of course, people die of the flu every year, but it wasn't as serious as we thought. At that point then, a leader, Boris Johnson, but Boris Johnson should have said, okay, people, this is what we did because we wanted to be safe than sorry. We've now realized it's not as dangerous as we thought lockdown's over isolate if you're vulnerable we're going back to normal sorry for the inconvenience for two three weeks you know i take responsibility for that i'm sorry but i put your safe there first but things have changed now we've got more information it's over i would have applauded that man for saying that but what happens is to find themselves on the treadmill of we then admit that was a mistake so we've got to carry on down this road no matter how much damage it does because because we don't want to admit that was wrong well when, when information changes you should change what you think as well and that's cowardice a real leader would go changing plan now because things have changed and the public probably would have applauded someone doing that
1: well yes and also they've got the opportunity to do it because it is an ever-changing thing and it is an ever-changing uh stream of information that they're they're getting as well as we are so it's it... It is, I don't want to say a get out, but it is a possible get out to say, well, you knew when I knew, you know, what 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 can I say? You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It it's difficult. I mean, it, given that sort of situation, um, do you end lockdown because you, know, you want people to get back to get back to normal life, or are you going to be slightly concerned that if there's a slight uptick in deaths? Um, after letting people get in, get back on um, get back into normal life that that's going to be put on you um I, I think that's a very difficult position to be in um
0: I don't think it's difficult at all. It's called leadership. Do you have a general sending their soldiers into war going, or well, should we send them into war? Some of these soldiers may die? I might get blamed for that. Well that's their job, same with our top politicians. it's their job. It's not their job to worry about their career. It's their job to worry about the country and the public. They should have ended that lockdown after a couple of weeks and told the truth. That's all we expect. And let's say more people would have died then because more COVID would have spread a bit more. More people may have died or may not have died, I don't know. But let's say more people died. Well, the answer to that is, well, we advised you that if you're vulnerable, don't mix with people. And, you know, all we can do is give you advice. We're not a dictatorial nation. As prime minister, I only have the right to lock you in your houses at the most precedent times. Mm. And I didn't believe this was the most precedent time. I didn't force you out of your houses to catch it. I gave you the power over your life. And I gave you the chance to make the decisions for you and your family, because that's where the power should be. It shouldn't be with me as a politician. It should be with you as an individual, for you and your family. That's what Bobby Johns. Bobby, I keep saying his name wrong. Bobby Johnson sort of
1: should have said. I keep on thinking you and say um, Bobby Cholton for some <laughs> reason. <laughs> 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 yeah, when it comes to when it comes to making decisions and actually uh, seeing things through and getting things done, um, mm-hmm. we we're, we're not just talking about uh, Nick Buckley mayor who's going to sort out these cameras, these clean air uh, things. There are, there are other things in the pipeline as well. Uh, one of those things is, uh, one of those very important things is crime. And, uh, and you know, I'd like to talk to you about that. But also uh, homelessness, which is quite sort of dear to your heart because it's something yeah. you've been working on for, for many years. Can you tell me what, what, what you have been doing and what you would aim to do? Because you've got some quite big claims when it comes to, um, uh, homelessness and, w- and what you aim to do with that in, in yeah. Greater Manchester.
0: Yeah. So we're looking at homelessness. What I mean by homelessness is rough sleeping. So homelessness is a generic term which, which can mean lots of things: sofa surfing, living in cra- overcrowded houses, living in a hotel, a B and B. I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the apex of this problem, which is people, our fellow citizens, living and dying in entries, surrounded by bats and lying in excrement. That's what I'm talking about, and that's what I'm going to fix. I've been involved in rough sleeping for nearly two decades. When I worked at Manchester Council, I was the chair of a multi-agency panel, including the police, NHS, drug services, councils, um, looking at ending rough sleeping in Greater Manchester. Sorry, in the city of Manchester. And at that point, we had 17 rough sleepers. Can you imagine that? 17 rough sleepers in, in Manchester. We now have 100, if not 200. I think, yeah, it's more like 200. Um, And then when I left, I set Chavity up, and then one of the projects I set up, working on the streets in the city centre with rough sleepers, and getting them off the streets, into accommodation, and then getting them into employment, and we helped hundreds of people. We can end rough sleeping in Greater Manchester in one year. That's all it takes. It'll take a little bit of money, but not much money, only a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Andy Burnham has spent hundreds of millions on this, and the problem is slightly better today than it was six and a half years ago and he spent hundreds of millions he promised to end rough sleeping in three years he's now had six and a half and it's actually increasing the latest stats that he's released is actually increasing again in greater manchester um i'm gonna end it in a year and that sounds almost impossible and crazy the way the reason why andy burnham has failed to achieve what he wanted to achieve he only, he only addressed one part of the problem of sleeping and that was the accommodation side. He is getting people off the streets. but Every time he takes someone off the streets, someone replaces that person. So it, it's a never-ending conveyor belt. What I will do on day one is we will clamp down on begging. There will be no begging in Greater Manchester. Not in the city centres, not in the town centres, not outside supermarkets, outside petrol stations, outside any shops. For the first few months, you'll be moved on. You'll be warned, you'll be moved on. After the first couple of months, you'll be arrested. It's illegal to beg in this country. We won't be prosecuting people necessarily, and we won't be sending people to jail or to the courts. There's no point, but we'll disrupt begging. We'll make it, to, we'll get to a stage where there's no point begging in Greater Manchester because you make no money. For the second you sit down, you get hassled by the police. that will be one of the police's private because the mayor is also the police crime commissioner. But people who say, well, that's extremely unfair. That sounds quite nasty. Picking on beggars. There's not more criminals you could deal with. The answer to that is every penny that's earned through begging is spent with drug dealers. So you're actually feeling organised crime. Every All the drugs rough sleepers take damages them even more and eventually kills them. Most of the people on the streets begging are not even rough sleeping. They have accommodation. They're just begging for money for drugs. They're is rough sleepers. Because if they keep taking the amount of drugs they're taking, they will lose their accommodation. They will end up on the streets. So we're just supplying more rough sleepers for tomorrow. So once we end begging, the people sat on the streets then will be genuinely homeless and rough sleeping. They'll have less drugs in their system, which means they're easier to work with, which means they're more likely to take help and support will offer of them. I'm going to create a series of hostels across Greater Manchester, only about six. That's how many we're going to need. This use warehouses, we're going to fill them with garden sheds and each shed will be an individual living pod. So with a door, storage area, TV, and then we can move people off the streets into them on day one. It doesn't matter what their issue is. So at the moment, you know, we'll go out and we'll speak to people, do you want accommodation? And if they say, yeah, it's like, oh, you've got a dog. There's only a couple of hostels in Greater Manchester that will take dogs. So we can't help you today. Or you're a drug user. You know that you can't take drugs in this hostel. Well, I'm going to take drugs tonight. Well, that hostel won't let you in. These are the barriers that are stopping people Mm. getting off the streets and into accommodation. And as mayor, I'll be saying all my hostels will take dogs. We'll have kennels. All my hostels won't throw you out if you're taking drugs or you're drinking alcohol. If we see you with drugs, you'll be arrested because it's still illegal. So you know, I'm not looking at semi-legalising drugs, I'm not. But if you quietly take drugs or you, you know you come back to the hostel and you've taken drugs and you're not violent, all fine. And the reason why we don't do that now is in case someone dies. If someone ODs in a hostel, the council's are scared stiff, they'll get to blame. Why are you letting people take drugs? They're dying in your hostels. So they would rather have these individuals die on the streets. Hmm. You can't blame the council then. What I'll do as mayor is say, I take full responsibility. I take personal responsibility. It's not the hostel's fault. It's not the council's fault. I take responsibility if people OD in our hostels. Because the odds are, that person would have OD'd on the streets anyway and died. At least they died in a bed here, not surrounded by rats. So I will take that. And on the plus side, that's one death. Look at the dozens of people we've got off the streets and into proper accommodation and improve their lives. That's the flip side to this. Again, I'm tired of people being cowards. I'm sick of senior managers only worried about their job and their pension and doing the wrong things because the wrong things are convenient for them, not in this for me. So that's how we deal with that. Then we need to look at people who come to Manchester because people come from all over, all over the country to be a rough sleep in Greater Manchester. So we can't then be a beacon for every rough sleeper.
1: Why is that? Why why is it a hotspot? Why is it a a destination for that?
0: It's got a great reputation of this is where you come to be a rough sleeper because we've got, there's that much free food being given out, that much tents and sleeping bags all being given out every day, Um, there's there's lots of services. So you're more likely to get accommodation as a rough sleeper in Manchester than you are in almost anywhere in the country so if you're a rough sleeper who, ha- who happens to want accommodation make your way to manchester you're more likely to get accommodation so there's a pull factor here pulling people into greater manchester and that's unfair on the taxpayers of greater manchester you know we shouldn't be you shouldn't be paying the bills for other councils across the country who don't do their job and send these people to manchester greater manchester So what I'll be doing, I'll be looking at taking individual councils to court. We'll be invoicing them. So Greater Manchester will say, we dealt with Joe Bloggs, who comes from Coventry. Lived in Coventry all his life. And he's now turned up at Manchester and we've dealt with him here. So we'll send an invoice to Coventry Council for 80, 90 grand, because that's what it'll cost. And then they won't pay it and we'll take him to court. And we'll start embarrassing councils and we'll embarrass the government and say, this is what needs to be done. The reason why we have a problem across the country is because councils won't do their jobs. And as national government, you need to set up a system where you start rating councils on how how quickly they get rough sleepers off the streets. And then you need to start fining councils who are failing. That's how we get councils to do better. Um, and that hopefully will stop the flow of people into Greater Manchester. Otherwise, it's a never-ending story. And again, Manchester Council, if we've got people who are foreigners, who turn up in the country and end up both sleeping in Greater Manchester, uh, we need to take the Home Office to court because I want the money of the Home Office. You allowed this person in the country. You gave him leave to remain. This is a Home Office problem. We want 80 grand off you because we just helped Ali Hussein into accommodation and got him off the streets. This is a bill for you for the Home Office. We- Greater Manchester will not be taken advantage of if I'm Mayor and if I'm successful in some of these cases, other towns, other cities will go right. We can start charging failing councils for sending us their broken people. That's one of the ways we change this across the country as well. What I do in Greater Manchester isn't just for Greater Manchester, it's to improve the whole country. I want to show a new path of how we can improve many of our social problems.
1: And if it works here it'll work everywhere i've heard you talk of um of, of food of people giving because by and large you know a lot of people are, are, are very generous and i know that there'll be there'll be people <clears throat> listening to to what you have to say um uh, earlier on who would perhaps be um perhaps be quite well-meaning um but vehemently disagree with what you said about yeah. um, about giving uh, about giving money or food or um, shelter shelter in, yeah. in the form of tents um, to people on the street. Um, w- w- what do you say to that?
0: Let me address the food one first with a bit of a story. So this is what I tell people who say I don't give money because I'm not going to spend it on drugs, but but I give them a meal deal, and that can't do any harm. And you you think to yourself, well, that can't do any harm. Or can it? Let me explain the damage it does. So you give someone a meal deal. You walk away, you feel fantastic. You've done your job. You go home, you feel like ringing your mum. Mum, you're right, I am an amazing son. I am an amazing daughter. Do you know what I've done today for 3.99? I'm amazing. So it's a good 3.99 you spend, because you get something out of that. You get validation. You pat yourself on the shoulder. You might even take a picture of yourself giving the meal deal out and putting it on social media so the rest of the world know you're fantastic as well. What does that do to the person sat on the street? Well, let me tell you. In in, in Greater Manchester, you can eat free for something like 10, 15 hours a day, every day. If you you map where all the hostels are, all the outreach centres, all the community centres, you can eat. Between ten and fifteen hours a day, depending on the day of the week, no one is hungry in Greater Manchester. No one has ever been hungry in Greater Manchester when you're a rough sleeper. In fact, they're giving far too much food. I've sat down with individuals who have got a black bin bag next to them and say to me, "Do you want a sandwich, Nick?" Well, no, thank you. Why? Well, I've got seventeen sandwiches here because people keep buying the me meal deals, and I've had the Mars bar and I've had the can of coke, but. I've got far too many sandwiches. and They're all going in the bin in a minute, but I thought you might want. They're all unopened. It's like, no, thank you. So no one's hungry. But giving someone a meal deal, that stops them seeking out a hot, healthy meal that day in one of the centres. And it's only when we get people into those centres that the social workers and the support workers can start speaking to that individual on picking some of their problems, working out how they can get them help and support to get them off the streets. Those conversations takes weeks and months to unpick some of these problems. So, what you must understand is, every time you give someone a meal deal, all you've done is stop that person getting help and support that day. That's what you've achieved.
1: Yeah, I think I think people are. I think some people are very aware of what may well happen if they if they give somebody uh, give somebody money. Um, <clears> I think that yeah, I think that rather goes without saying um but yeah it's it's interesting to look at that aspect so effectively if you give mm. somebody the food that they would otherwise get in a place where they would get other support then they are going to miss out on that support
0: they are and i say to those people i want you to help mm. you're a kind-hearted person i want you to help but well, that's the wrong way to help how you should help if you're time rich then volunteer at one of the centers and they may want you to make toast in the mornings and you might think, well, what's the point of that? Well, if you if you spend an hour, an hour and a half making toast for everyone coming in in the mornings, that means the support worker doesn't have to make the toast. That means the mm. support worker can sit on the tables when people are eating and can have informal chats with and find out who's new and new, who needs help. So you making toast is giving a professional support worker the opportunity to do more good by speaking to people. Now, if you're time poor, Well, instead of spending £4 on a meal deal, why don't you set up a direct debit to give £4 a month to one of the support centres? Doesn't sound a lot, but if a couple of hundred people did that, that £4 might pay for 50 people's breakfast on a day. That means something. That gets them in the shelters. And all these shelters are always short of money. That does something. You can still go to bed at night knowing you helped, you did something. That was positive and productive. And then people talk about sleeping bags and tents. So let me tell you about tents. Five, six, seven, eight years ago, working in Manchester City Centre, opposite Piccadilly train station, big piece of grassland and we had a mini tent city there. And my team were visiting there almost every day, trying to get people to accept help and support so we could move them on. One day we were there and there was a young lad there we asked him how old he was. He said, oh, I'm 19. And my staff went, fantastic, 19. If you're under 25 in Greater Manchester, we can get you accommodation that day. If you're over 25, it can take a few days. So once we understand you're under 25, it cheers my staff up because it's like, we're gonna get a victory today. And that's what keeps them going because we have many failures. But when you get a victory, that keeps you going for the next couple of weeks, knowing you're not going to help anybody. And he said, I don't want accommodation, thank you very much. We went, no, 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 we could get it done today. But we I don't want it. Why don't you want it? If I wanted accommodation, I'd go home. What do you mean you'd go home? I'd go home to my bedroom with my mum and dad. and live down the road. So what are you doing here living in a tent? He we went, oh, I started hanging around with these guys a couple of months ago, and they were sharing their drugs with me. So I used to come every day, we'd share drugs, and we'd have a bit of a laugh, and I liked it. And then every now and again, I was too drugged up to go home. So I'd keep in one of the tents and they'd go home every now and again for a shower. To see my mum and dad and stuff like that. And then one day I was sat here out of my head and this car pulled up and this woman ran at me with two bin bags and threw them at me. And she goes, there you go, love, you can have these. So I opened up one of the bin bags and there was a sleeping bag and some sandwiches. And I opened up the other bin bag and there was a tent. So I put the tent up and the sleeping bag and I've not been home since. That person who thought she was doing a good deed has now enabled a 19-year-old boy who's got a bedroom at home to be able to sleep rough and take more drugs and live a negative lifestyle. They're the unintended consequences of trying to fix a problem you have no understanding of. And these are harsh words and these are nice people trying to do a good thing, but doing Doing the wrong thing for the right reasons is still the wrong thing to do.
1: Mm. I, that leads into something that uh, only a, a few days ago, Suella um, Braverman said. I've been all
0: over the news talking about this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep, she said in very clumsy words. Um, She's a very intelligent woman. Mm. so I, I would imagine she picked her words very carefully. And I'm sure she knew this was going to be controversial because I'm sure she's trying to build a reputation so she can become PM at some point in the future. Um, Never underestimate the top politicians that they're stupid. Everything they do, they're doing for a reason. Just because you don't understand the reason doesn't mean there's not a reason behind it. Um, So she said that she was going to pass a law in a King's speech that would make it illegal for anybody, including charities, to hand out tents because she didn't want tent cities springing up like in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, And she said it basically as harshly as I've just said it. No context, didn't have someone like me stood by her side with 20 years experience to, to be able to say it softly and explain the situation better. She just came out with it. That's why I know she did it on purpose. And then you got flak that you she knew you should get. Nasty Tories, you're evil, you want people to freeze to death in in the country. I don't know one rough sleeper ever to freeze to death in the UK. I don't know one rough sleeper ever to starve to death in the UK. So that doesn't exist. Rough sleepers die on the streets all the time. All the time. So it's not like they don't die. They do die and it's disgraceful and we should be ashamed. But they don't die through hypothermia. We're designed to live outside. If you've got a good sleeping bag, you're fine. Um, I'm not saying it should be acceptable. It's not acceptable, but you don't die because of it. Um, The left jumped on her, attacked her, which I'm sure she wanted. Some of her colleagues attacked her because they don't understand rough sleeping either. That's the biggest problem with rough sleeping. It's no one understands it. So people keep doing things, trying to fix it. But you can't fix a problem you don't understand. do I agree with her? Yes. We should be handing tents out, just be, just like that story I told you about that young boy, yeah. nineteen years old, who we were given a tent. And let's say, giving out tents did help. Let's say that's a given. Our job isn't to make a rough sleeper's life slightly easier on the streets. Our only aim and job is to get people off the streets, spending our time. Funding and organising the collection and buying and giving out of sleeping bags achieves nothing when we're looking at getting people off the streets. Why are we wasting our time on something that doesn't matter? All our time, energy and money should be getting those individuals off the streets, not making their life slightly easier on the streets. That's what annoys me the most.
1: Hmm. So what about crime?
0: So crimes, again, is unfinished business to me. I've spent 20 years fighting crime, reducing crime, designing award-winning projects. I've advised three different prime ministers um, on reducing crime across the country. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to reducing crime and antisocial behavior. Um All our police forces are broken. In fact, they're not even police forces, the police services The first thing I do if I'm elected mayor, who's also the police crime commissioner, is I'm going to change the title of Greater Manchester Police. It's not a police service anymore. It's going to be a police force. I want criminals terrified of the police. We're not going to be delivering a service to the people of Greater Manchester. We haven't got time. I've not got time. I'll be too busy hammering and coming down hard on criminals. That's what I'll be doing. Five years from now, we may develop a police service again, but to begin with, a police force. I want to reduce crime and antisocial behaviour, and for that I make no apologies. So to begin with, that's day one, police force. Day two, we need to look at recruitment in Greater Manchester Police. I'll be scrapping the quotas they've got to employ ethnic, ethnic minorities, women, disabled, gay people. All quotas will be gone. You will get a job at Greater Manchester Police if you're the best person for that job. I'll be looking at the fitness test, recruitment, the standards will be rising, the fitness test will be getting harder. I won't be having unshaved officers, tattooed officers, scruffy officers. I won't be having officers calling you mate or love. Every officer who as a member of the public will be calling you sir and madam. Even when they're rolling around the mud trying to arrest you, They'll be calling you, sir. Stop struggling, sir. Sir, you're making this worse. They will not be calling you, muppet, which you see on online all the time. Stop struggling, you muppet. No, <laughs> British gas don't come into your house to fix your boiler and say you've been messing with this, you muppet. They right. say, I'm sorry, sir. It Looks like you've been, you know, someone's been messing with this, and that's why it's broken. I want, this, I want our police to be a professional service. Mm. So. And then I'll be looking at promotion within the police. That's a huge problem. With The promotion system at the moment rewards and promotes people who are woke and people who are robots. That needs to end. I'm going to de-woke Greater Manchester Police and I want the best people being promoted and we will look at that. Help training new officers. I'm going to create a project where retired police officers can volunteer. And help train new officers. It's going to have to be volunteer because I, be, I won't have the money to pay these people and you know, bring them all back. And many, many retired police officers I've spoken to said, I'll jump at that chance to be a volunteer. I've already retired. I've seen a service I love deteriorating. I'll do this for free. Mm-hmm. So the support's already out there. Then we'll be looking at what we privatising in Greater Manchester. So begging will be privatised anti behaviour will be privatized, and knife crime will be privatized. I'll be looking at increasing stop and search. Very controversial, but that's how you stop knife crime. I'll be engaging every neighbourhood in Greater Manchester and speaking to those people and saying, "Do you want more stop and search in your neighbourhood? Because if you do, you'll get it. And if you don't, don't come complaining if your son is stabbed to death and dies in the in pools of their own blood, because." we want to give you more stop and search. And I will let those communities decide themselves. And I'll be looking at how do we do that to make it fair. And I'll be looking at using local council elections every year. So polling stations and people will be given an extra ballot paper saying, in this ward, do you want more stop and search? And and whatever they decide, they will get. Which means when the police are being accused of being racist, the answer is, no, excuse me. The people who vote in this area, the parents, the grandparents, the residents of this area, all voted for more stop and search. We're doing what the people asked us. If you've got a problem in this, you need to speak to the people who live here. That's how we get away from the race baiters who accuse the police all the time of Alzheimer's being racist. Anti-social behaviour, we'll be taking that extremely seriously because the people who commit anti behaviour are also the people who commit serious crime. They're not different people, they're the same people. We will hammer people for antisocial behaviour. And why? Because that ruins people's quality of life. If you're mugged in the street, that's horrendous. That affects you for one day, mainly. And you're worried about it for a long time afterwards, but it affects you for one day. When you've got drug dealers next door and you've got severe antisocial behaviour on your estate, that's over years and decades. That destroys you. That destroys all your quality of life. We need to start taking that more seriously and using powers of eviction, using powers of the crack house law, which means we can close people's houses and if they use them as drug dealing or drug dens. This thing, we've got lots of powers. We don't need any new laws or any more powers. We have more than we ever need. It's about having a backbone and using them. And, uh, and what we really need is a politician to protect the police and protect the chief constable. Because what we do now, especially the Met, is we throw officers under the bus. And how are you expecting them to go above and beyond and do the best job when they're constantly worried they're going to get sacked or constantly worried they're going to get into trouble? Mm. I'm going to give the police my priority to say, you do what you need to do within the law. I'm not having officers go in vogue, I know, crossing lines and beating people up. No, they'll be sacked. But I'm not going to start giving community groups far too much say on what happens in areas. Not have a community group who's voted for you. You're a community leader. Who told you you're a community leader? So those people have far too much power. Democracy should have the power, not so-called self-appointed community leaders. Um, So we're going to be looking at all those things. Greater Manchester will become a lot safer, a lot quicker. What will let us down would be the court system. That's what's going to let us down. And I'll be tackling that. I can't create a court system. It's out of the remit of the mayor. But I can highlight the failing system in the courts. I can highlight the failing judges and say, why is this judge constantly letting knife crime offenders go with a slap on the wrist? Mm. Why is this judge? And maybe we can sack some judges through political pressure. Because judges are not perfect. No, they will make mistakes. And I can handle one or two mistakes. But if, if you're constantly making the same mistake, it means you're not learning as a judge. So I'll be shouting and screaming in national government if our judges and court system keeps letting
1: us down, and of course uh, magistrates as well, because a lot of this, a lot of this crime will be uh, low-level crime, certainly to start off yeah. with.
0: When I said judges, I meant judges and magistrates. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. and and this is the thing. From what what it sounds like, it sounds like what they used to call uh, broken windows. Um, yeah. yeah, it's dealing with these these small crimes, these small anti what what some people would call small antisocial issues um that that helps to deal with the with the bigger crimes absolutely well one of the biggest things you, you you've got there and you know you've perhaps alluded to the to the problems that it causes in terms of um uh rough sleeping is uh is drugs how do you tackle drugs surely you know the re- the resources the money the um everything that's involved in that in that trade which goes across the country well, across the world How, how do you aim to tackle that?
0: Again, drugs is a national policy. Um, nothing I can do on policy there. All I can do is enforce the law. Drugs is a huge problem. Um, there's several solutions we could have as a nation for that, ranging from a complete crackdown, but that would entail, that would entail COVID levels of government interference in your lives. Um, And I'm not sure anybody would accept that. Um, Drugs are almost semi-legal now. You can buy drugs on any street in any town or city across the country. Cannabis is by all means legal now. You can walk past a police officer smoking, nothing ever gets done. Um, It's a difficult one. I, Massive Police will, will crack down on any law that's being broken. So we will not be going soft on drugs. But all we can do is enforce the laws we've got. So you won't be walking around city centres anymore smoking cannabis. The smell of cannabis will be investigated and officers will arrest you. There'll be no more of this. Just put that out and go away. It sends out the wrong signal. When you're in an area and you can smell cannabis, you automatically know this is not a nice area. This is yep. a dangerous area. This is a criminal area. What does that do to all the local residents who a law abiding? It ruins their life. It makes them feel unsafe. It then sends out the wrong signal to all the kids that cannabis is fine and breaking the law is fine because in this country, we have two types of laws. We have laws you can choose to obey and you have laws you must obey. No, 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 no. There's only one law in this country that you have to obey them all, but we're designing a two tier system where you can decide now which laws affect you and which laws don't affect you. We need to get away from that. And cannabis is a great, is a great example of that. It's become it's it's become any it's become almost legalized, but it really is a national problem and a national discussion. There's not much I can do with me. Uh,
1: what what makes you uh, what makes you tick outside of politics? Um, mm. What what does Nick Buckley look like?
0: At the moment, I have no spare time. I've <laughs> taken a, I've taken a year off work. Yeah. So uh, I've already done six months on this full time. I've got another six months full time. So, you know, I'm spending six, seven, eight hours a day on social media. I'm meeting everybody who wants to meet me to see where that leads to. I'm doing every interview, every podcast that, that's offered my way. I'm just trying to do as much as I can, hoping one of those opportunities will lead to something huge. Hmm. Um, that's what I'm doing. My Apart from that at the moment, I spend time with my granddaughter um, who, who, who cheers me up. Um, I've just finished writing my third book. Uh, that's published next Wednesday. That's about feminism and exploring the rotten core at the heart of feminism. Um, I won't be starting a new book until after the election. Um, at the moment, it's just election, 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 and trying to get some sleep. I'm constantly tired. Um I'm constantly a little bit naughty with my wife.
1: Hmm. Um, because of the rotten core of feminism? <laughs>
0: um, no, just because I'm tired and because of all the work I'm doing. And and like anything in life, it's hard to keep motivated when you can't yeah. see, when, you, when the increments are so small you can't see them. Um, so I'm self-motivating all the time. Um, it's good that I've got a target, which is six months from now, Um, six months is not a long time so I'll keep going Um, but I'm enjoying the campaign I mean last time i ran, I had eight weeks that's all I had to campaign was eight weeks and and I didn't even know what I was doing at least this time around I had I've got some lessons from last time Um, and I'm I'm trying to enjoy what I'm doing I'm, I'm enjoying speaking my mind I'm enjoying putting out my ideas and opinions to see if anyone can critique them, if anyone can shoot them down. Um, that's not happened yet. I'm sure, you know, clever people than me will be able to find some holes in some of them. And I hope to do because I need to learn from that. I'm not here to be proven right. I'm, like I said, I, I'm here to improve my country. And if my ideas are not good enough, then I want someone to show me they're not good enough so I can change them. I don't want to implement poor ideas. I'll just be as bad as everybody else then. Um, It's a journey. It's a journey. It's hard work, but it's a journey.
1: Um, So where can you be found? Uh, Where can we find out more about what you're doing?
0: Yep, I'm all over social media, so all the main sites, uh, at Nick Buckley MBE, all one word. Um, Look at my website, my manifesto now Uh, went live last week, so I've got a manifesto there now, my website, which is... Nick um Have a look at all my policies and what I'm going to do. On social media, I'm trying now to write articles explaining how I will implement some of these policies so you've got a better understanding. Because right, reading a couple of sentences about what I'm going to do means nothing. Anyone can say words. I'm trying to get into the detail of some of it to show people that I, that I know what I'm talking about. So follow me on social media for those essays. Follow me on Substack again, Nick Buckley MBE. I'm writing essays there at the moment on politics and what I intend to do. Um, and if you want some big reads, find me on Amazon, Nick Buckley MBE. I've got three books there now: one on courage, one on begging, and the latest one that's released next week on feminism.
1: How, how was how was it the the day that you found out that you got the uh, the MBE?
0: Oh, fantastic! Um, at that point, I would say it was the most rewarding day in my life to be recognized. You know, I'm a monarchist anyway, so, you know, and, you know, it was awarded by our late queen. It was fantastic um, that the work I've done in a charity I founded was recognized. Um, yeah, they were, yeah, I did. Lost for words. It was mm. absolutely fantastic. And that's the medal behind me on the wall there in the frame. That's my MBE.
1: And they say that uh, MBE stands for my bloody effort, whereas the OBE is uh, other bugger's effort.
0: I've been told it means something <laughs> else. I get a lot of comments online that it means uh, major bellend. <laughs> that's the that's one of the most common comments I get on social media of people who don't like me. And you've got an MBE, have you? Major bellend. <laughs> The first time someone did that, I thought, that's very really clever. Yeah. And then after 800 times, it's like, no, this, this has been going on for a long time. Mm. I, someone didn't create that title just for me. This must have been going on for decades. <laughs>
1: uh, thanks very much for, for coming on the show. You're welcome.
0: I've enjoyed it. It's nice being able to answer a question with no time limit. Mm. When I'm on GB News or Talk TV, I know I've got 20 seconds, 30 seconds to answer their question. And when we're talking about complicated social issues, it doesn't do it justice in 20, 30 seconds.
1: That was a conversation recorded on the 9th of November, 2023 with Nick Buckley MBE. If you've got something you want to say about this episode, feel free to get in the comments. If you've got more to say and you want to be on the show, just get in touch. You can DM me on all the socials at Ted James Media. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest. But that's all for now, so see you in the next video.